Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Pastor Larry Spargimino tackles a controversial question about husbands and wives. But first, James Collins has kept the radio vault open, ready to continue our studies in Timothy with Noah Hutchings. Friends, this month has been very difficult financially. We need you to be praying. Today, I want to ask you to consider becoming a faithful friend of Watchmen on the Wall. Faithful friends are individuals and families who come alongside Watchmen on the Wall with a monthly financial gift. Whether it's $10 or $100 per month, it all goes to help the ministry continue to proclaim the truth that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Right now, we need 300 faithful friends to begin supporting Watchmen on the Wall on a monthly basis. I've been so encouraged by the individuals and families that are beginning to respond and are becoming faithful friends. Will you please be one of the faithful 300? Call 1-800-652-1144 and find out the benefits of becoming a faithful friend today. 1-800-652-1144. Now, here is staff evangelist James Collins. The two epistles Paul wrote to Timothy are not usually associated with theology as much as they are with church organization and practice. However, it is very significant to notice that many doctrines of the Christian faith are supported by key verses from these letters. So it's important for believers to read and understand the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. Recently, Beacon Street Press released a new edition of Noah Hutchings' book, Studies in Timothy. This 195-page book, written in Noah's easy-to-understand style, is a chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse commentary on 1st and 2nd Timothy. Today, we're going to continue spotlighting the book by listening to portions of an interview that Noah did back in 1990 when Studies in Timothy was originally released. Let's listen now as Noah examines what Paul had to say about the qualifications of church leaders. In the third chapter here, Paul instructs Bishop Timothy concerning the proper qualification for church leadership, bishops and deacons. The office of bishop, as referred to by Paul, means one who is an overseer of the church. At Ephesus, on his way back to Jerusalem, Paul declared to the church leaders, as we read in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. My, 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 how true this is today. And it began all the way back there when Paul was ministering and establishing churches. And Paul uses the word here of disciple to refer to learners. Every false cult thrives on those who know a little bit about the Bible but not enough to rightly divide the word of truth. Like wolves who feed on the lame and the stragglers are down in Africa. We see the wild animals, the lions, well, will first single out the weak or the young. 
And that is what Paul here is warning us about. They devour those who are weak in the faith with false doctrine. Thus, one of the principal duties of bishops is to keep out the wolves and to expel those among the membership who resort to blasphemy. However, when the wolves themselves are in a position of leadership, the only alternative presented is for the sheep to run for cover, to run for their lives. For the most part, churches have not heeded Paul's warning concerning careful selection of church leaders. Just having a doctor's degree in front of their names is no good. Actually, that is simply the wolf's cover, their doctor's degree. Paul said it is not enough for a man to merely desire the office of bishop. He must have certain basic qualifications, both doctrinal and personal. 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives the qualifications not only for bishops, but also for deacons. But there was a difference. And another thing we notice in this chapter is the qualifications for deacons. And we notice that Paul had not included one of the qualifications for a bishop. In other words, this qualification for a bishop was not included in the qualifications for a deacon, and that would be double tongue. And we surmise that Paul meant this to apply, though, to all church officials. The word in the Greek applies to the thing of one thing or another are not being clear or having a veiled reference to say one thing and mean another thing. And, of course, we know we hear a lot of that today from the pulpit. Some of the modernists are apostates or liberals. You may think they believe in salvation only through faith in Jesus Christ and his shed blood. But if you can get them put what they're saying down in black and white, then it's another story. It's a lot of double talk. And this is what Paul is talking about, that bishops are those who preach in the church should not be double-tongued, but to be simple, plain, and make the congregations or the unsaved aware of exactly what they mean. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That passage deals with the mystery of the incarnation. Here is Noah Hutchings with more. Paul says that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh. So great a mystery is the incarnation, that it remains a mystery to most of the world today, and even to the majority of those who profess him as Lord and Savior. Now, it was a mystery in the day that Christ was tried in a Roman court and hung on a cross. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now the fact that God could be born into the world of a virgin to die for the sins of men is a mystery which the Jews stumble over. It is a mystery which the world turns away from. And it 
is the mystery that apostates scoff at. Nevertheless, we who have believed on his name, we who have been born again unto eternal life, knowing Jesus Christ was everything the scriptures declared him to be, the very Son of God who died for our sins on the cross, we are the only ones who understand the mystery of incarnation. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. We know that he arose from the grave. We know that he ascended back to the Father to intercede for those who accept his mercy and his grace. We know because today he saves sinners. He delivers drug addicts from their demonic obsession. And we see those things which he said would come upon the earth before his return. We see them happening in our day. He said he would come back to save the world from those who would destroy it. Thus we say with Paul, great is the mystery of Jesus Christ. But praise God for the faith which he has given us to believe on his name. I'm James Collins, and you are listening to a spotlight program of Studies in Timothy, the classic commentary by Dr. Noah Hutchings. Beacon Street Press has just released a new edition of the book, and it's available now by calling 1-800-652-1144, or you can order online at swrc.com. Paul's letters to Timothy are filled with sound doctrine. But there is more than just doctrine in these epistles. There is also prophecy. For more, let's go back to the radio vault. From 1990, here again is Noah Hutchings. We read again 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. As we mentioned earlier, seducing spirits in the Greek is planos, spirits from other planets, meaning the sanctuaries of Satan in heaven spoken of in the scriptures. Now, in relation to the doctrines of devils, Paul says that some would forbid marriage and command the absence from meat. In Paul's day, There was an ascetic Jewish brotherhood who lived on the shores of the Dead Sea called the Essenes. Membership was restricted to non-married males, and they abstained from all animal meat. The Gnostic apostasy also involved the eating of certain foods and abstinence from meat. Paul wrote the epistle to the church at Colossae to expose the spiritual evil that was in Gnosticism. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. The Catholic Church incorporated some of these beliefs concerning celibacy from servants of the church and the abstinence from meat on certain occasions. Now, it is entirely possible that Paul was referring to the Essenes, the Gnostics, or even in a prophetic sense, to the doctrines of some of the churches today. However, we must also consider strongly that he meant these strange practices to be related to the latter times as mentioned at the beginning of chapter 4. Now, the type of food one eats 
can play an important part in spiritual development within the occult. Many of those in the occult will not eat meat. They say this makes them open to the spirits, but of course, if it makes them open to the spirits, we wonder what kinds of spirits they are opening themselves up to. We know from their activities they are cohabiting or having double dealings with alien spirits. The Apostle Paul gave his son in the faith, Timothy, two charges. However, these charges apply to all ministers. From Studies in Timothy, here is Noah Hutchings with more. Paul gives two charges to the young bishop of Ephesus, and I think these charges apply to all who are in full-time Christian service, especially evangelists, missionaries, and pastors. Number one, hold fast or securely the outline or substance of the gospel passed on to Timothy by Paul. The meaning is that this is the message that came from Jesus Christ to save whosoever would believe. It must not be changed or altered in any way. He must continue to tell men and women everywhere how to be saved just as he was saved. Number two, he was also to keep guard over the gospel. Although Timothy himself would be faithful to the leading of the Holy Spirit in interpreting the gospel and preaching it to men, others might not. Therefore, as a church leader of considerable authority, he was to guard jealously the gospel which Paul had given him to preach, not letting others in the churches under his care either distort or subvert it. Paul writes to Timothy about a man named Onesiphorus. You may have read his name, but you probably never gave him too much thought. The man is rather obscure. He is an unknown person. But I think that he can teach a great lesson to each and every one of us. Onesiphorus is a man who never wrote a book in the Bible. He never preached a sermon. He never cast out a demon. He never performed any miracles. As far as we can tell, all he ever did was he refreshed the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who lived his life, and God saw fit to sum up this man's life with these words, He oft refreshed me. Now, you think about living your life and God summarizing all that you did by that one sentence, He oft refreshed me. If that was worthy to be included in the Bible, then it would be wise for us to understand exactly what that means. If Onesiphorus refreshed Paul and God commended him for it by including him in the Bible, then it would be smart for us to try to understand the meaning of the phrase, He oft refreshed me. Once again, here is Noah Hutchings to tell you more. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Onesiphorus was evidently a member of the church at Ephesus, and Paul wanted Timothy to know how diligently, at great risk, this man had ministered to his needs while he was there in prison in Rome. Onesiphorus came to see Paul often, at doubtless bringing him food, clothing, and whatever would make Paul's burden lighter. 
From the context regarding Paul's commentation, this dear disciple and friend, we know that he had died, evidently, and it is entirely possible that he suffered martyrdom. This is revealed in Paul's statement, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. Nothing is said about greeting Onesiphorus himself, therefore we know he probably had suffered martyrdom, maybe even for visiting Paul. Paul's prayer was that the love and care that this faithful Christian had extended to him in time of great need would be taken into account by the Lord when rewards are given at the judgment seat of Christ. And certainly we all look forward to that day when we shall receive a reward for a deed done in the flesh while we're here in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. The letter known as Second Timothy was special because it was the Apostle Paul's last letter. Paul's second epistle to Timothy, which was his last epistle, it should be especially important to Christians because these are the last words of instructions concerning the revelation that God gave to Paul concerning the church, his mission to the Gentiles. Before Paul, the Gentiles were without a law. They were without feast days. They were without Sabbath. They were without a temple. The only message they had was as they became proselytes by the law through Israel. But now then, Gentiles were told they could be saved simply by faith. And this is the message that we find here again in Paul's second epistle to Timothy. The Apostle Paul was unwavering when it came to the gospel. Paul had learned many lessons through experience, and one of those lessons was that a minister cannot compromise the gospel of Christ. There is no such thing as an 80% gospel, a 70% gospel, a 90% gospel, or even a 99% gospel. It either is all gospel or it is no gospel at all. Any sign of compromise is an indication of weakness. While Paul was all things to all men that he might win them with the gospel, he was unwavering when it come to matters of doctrine, fundamentals of the faith. We may well wonder just why Paul would exhort Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and to endure hardness as a good soldier. Perhaps Timothy was not as bold as Paul or was more refined are more reticent, more timid in the social sense. Therefore, he needed to be encouraged, to be exhorted, to speak out forcefully, and to stand up against those who would pervert the gospel. Those who have had marine or infantry training or military training that we have had are eventually conditioned to make survival a matter of going on rather than a matter of giving up. This 46 years that I have been in the ministry, I can think of thousands of times when I just soon give up rather than going on, but we can't do that. If we're in the ministry, we are soldiers, and we have to keep fighting. We have to keep going on. The Apostle Paul often used athletic illustrations. Here again is Noah Hutchings to explain. Now we read Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And if a man also strive for masteries, Yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. If a runner in a race jumps the gun or interferes with another contestant, he is disqualified. If the horse in a rodeo contest leaves the stall too soon, no time is allotted. 
if a lineman on a football team jumps before the ball is snapped or a man on the backfield is illegally in motion, the team is penalized. In all athletic contests, there are rules to follow. Those who break the rules usually do not win. In the reference alluded to, Paul had in mind an athlete in the Greek Olympic Games. And we have been there in Corinth where the Greeks and the athletes contested there before the Bema seat. The crown or reward for the winner was a wreath for the head woven of ivy, roses, or oak leaves or some other plant that had some symbolic meaning. But the athletes in the original Olympic Games had to obey the rules governing the contest just as athletes do today. There are rules to follow. But in order to ensure the best athletic ability in them, they had to live by the rules preceding the game. Any contestant competing was required to train for 10 months preceding the Olympic Games. If you don't train, you don't win. This training included living a separated life in order to keep one's mind on the go and being placed on a rigid diet. If he didn't keep training rules, if he didn't obey the rules of the game, he would disqualify and he would be called a castaway. It was the training of a Grecian athlete and the ruling governing the Olympic Games that Paul had in mind when he wrote, Know ye not that they which run in a race run well, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You know, you see runners, if they haven't trained, if they haven't kept themselves in condition, they're out there painting and beating the air. They don't win. So we have to train. We have to keep our bodies under subjection. And Paul impressed upon Timothy that if a contestant in the Olympic Games uh, would not undergo that strenuous training and self-discipline, that he would not win a wreath and be gone in a day or two. Then how much more should Christians be willing to train, work, and even suffer in order to win an eternal reward, a reward of infinitely, a reward of much greater value, an incorruptible crown that will never fade or pass away? And this is why the Christians need to be so good soldiers. We need to train. We need to obey the rules. We need to walk before men and train before men. You have been listening to a discussion of Paul's letters to Timothy from the book Studies in Timothy by Noah Hutchings. Continue your study of First and Second Timothy with your own copy of the book Studies in Timothy, which is available now by calling 1-800-652-1144 or order online at swrc.com. I'm James Collins, leaving you with the words of the Apostle Paul who said, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our featured resource today is Noah Hutchings' classic book, Studies in Timothy. Inside this book, you'll find Noah's timeless teachings on 1st and 2nd Timothy. 
Order Noah Hutchings Classic Studies in Timothy when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online swrc.com. Today, Pastor Larry Spargimino is here to answer another Bible question for us. Pastor Larry, it seems that all we hear from the pulpit is that wives are to submit to their husbands. Do husbands have submission requirements too? Headship and submission are an important part of God's plan. But you are right, most of the preaching on submission is directed to women. It is important to remember that according to Scripture, both husbands and wives are to live in submission. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, we read, But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Let's look at this text a little more closely. Immediately, we see submission. I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. So here is headship, but it's not talking about women or wives. It's talking about men. The head of every man is Christ. Now let's look at the end of the verse, and the head of Christ is God. Here we find more headship, but it is not talking about women or wives. It's talking about Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Even Christ is in a position of submission. Just think of that for a moment. The head of Christ is God. That certainly does not imply that Jesus is inferior to God because he is God. And when it says the head of the woman is the man, it does not mean that the woman is inferior to the man. So what is it talking about? It is talking about position, not inequality. Just as Christ is not inferior to God, so too the woman is not inferior to the man. Let's think about position for a moment. The word position does not speak about equality or inequality. It speaks about function and place in a specific context. Supposing a father and two sons decide to go into business together, it is the Smith Family Grocery Store. Those three men, father and two sons, are all equally human. However, for the sake of the business, they decide that the father is to function as the president, one son as the vice president, and the other son as the COO. They are all equal, but each plays a different role in the Smith Family Grocery Store. Jesus is equal to God. He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, literally, in the Greek text, it says, and God was the Word. And yet, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. The work of redemption was completed because Jesus came under the headship of his heavenly Father. So here is the principle. Both husbands and wives ought to live in submission. It's a submission that does not mean inferiority. Noah Hutchings' classic book, Studies in Timothy, is back in print. Inside this book, you'll find Noah's timeless teachings on First and Second Timothy. Order Noah Hutchings' classic, Studies in Timothy, when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Tomorrow, we bring more clarity to the chaos. And as always, help you make sense of the nonsense. 
Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com. Thank you.